Welcome back to the show, guys. Today, we have a special interview with Christina Nunez. Christina is one of the founding partners of True Beauty Ventures. They are a VC firm that focuses exclusively on early stage beauty and wellness brands. So they have invested in brands like Crown Affair, K-18, Kinship, Moon Juice, K-Skin, Cali Ray, Beauty Stat. I mean, a really impressive portfolio so far. And they're a relatively new fund. They actually raised their first fund in the middle of the pandemic. And we actually get into some of that. So we talk about not only what Christina looks for as a beauty investor, how she helps her portfolio companies, common mistakes that she sees a lot of beauty brands making in the early stages. We also discuss what it was like to raise a fund as a first-time fund manager, and we get into some of the advice that she would give, especially other women who are aspiring to become VCs and raise their own funds. It was awesome to talk to Christina, who not only has been in venture, but before that she was in private equity. She's also been an operator in beauty. She was COO of Clark's Botanicals. Before that, she was at Laura Geller Beauty for a couple of years. So she's been on several sort of sides of this table. So it was just great to hear her perspectives and get a chance to talk to her. Without further ado, here is the conversation with Christina Nunez. We are here today with a very special guest, Christina Nunez of True Beauty Ventures. She is an investor that I've been wanting to talk to for a long time, and she specializes in investing in beauty brands. And I have connected to different folks on her team, but this is the first time that you and I are having a one-on-one conversation. So I'm really excited to have you here today, Christina. Thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you so much. Honestly, I'm so honored to be here, and I'm really excited about the conversation. So tell us about True Beauty Ventures and how you got into that. Oh, gosh. Um, It's a long and winding road to True Beauty Ventures, but I'll start off with who we are. Uh, True Beauty Ventures is an emerging growth beauty and wellness fund. Uh, We are dedicated to investing exclusively in the beauty and wellness industry, which is pretty unique. One of the reasons why we launched the fund, we launched in 2020, and we saw a huge white space to invest not only in earlier stage beauty and wellness brands, but beauty and wellness brands that were looking for $1 to $2 million in capital, and they weren't able to find it from traditional institutional investors. So they would either have to turn to angels or smaller VCs, and those would be great sources of funds, but sometimes they wouldn't have the expertise um, that an institutional investor would have, or they wouldn't have the sector sector specialization that we have. And so we decided to go after this white space and launch a truly dedicated fund to this industry that we love and to support founders who were really searching for capital and it was difficult for them to find it. And so that was early in in 2020, right before the global pandemic. And my co-founder, Rich Gersten and I, who have known each other for 12 years now, we have a an amazing past working in private equity together and have been close friends and colleagues for a long time. Um, We decided to do this together and we successfully raised our first fund. We raised $42 million during that tumultuous time all over Zoom, which was amazing. And, you know, we sit here today with 12 incredible beauty and wellness brands that truly have helped us build our firm and build what we stand for today, which is excellence in investing in this industry with true sector specialists that 
have a passion for the space and who really care about the growth and the success of our brands. We've got two other junior professionals and are quickly adding to our team as well. So it's amazing to see us grow so quickly in just two and a half years. I've read that you have referred to your portfolio construction and your strategy as a bit of a mix of venture capital and private equity because you come from a private equity background, but you're investing in earlier stage brands and writing smaller checks than you would out of a private equity fund. So tell us more about that and how you think about sort of that more concentrated portfolio approach and how that helps unlock more progress for your brands. Absolutely. And it it does stem from Rich and I's background in private equity, where you do have a slightly more concentrated portfolio and you write larger checks usually into these brands. And in traditional private equity, you also have majority ownership uh, usually of these companies. In our world, in earlier stage investing, we're not owning the majority. We're investing smaller checks and we have minority stakes. So, you know, for us, it's How do you spend time really developing as a minority investor the strongest partnership you can with your founders and the management teams? And one way to do that is to have a more concentrated portfolio where you actually can spend and dedicate real time uh, supporting these businesses. And so we have applied that concentrated portfolio strategy to our current fund. We do write pretty meaningful checks. We write anywhere, we invest anywhere from one to about 4 million or up to 5 million or so in capital. And so they're, they're meaningful checks, but at the end of the day, the founders that we're looking to partner with aren't coming to us simply for the capital. They're coming to us for the expertise, the operating experience that we have, and really kind of that hands-on approach. And so the only way to really do that is to have a smaller portfolio. And so we've applied that philosophy here. And the way we think about it is if you're able to spend more time with your founders, you're able to you know, dig into their financials, your their operational challenges, you're able to help them strategize. Ultimately, you're helping the brands avoid mistakes because what we have learned in the private equity world, which is further along than the stage that we're investing today, is that sometimes it is very difficult to come back from mistakes. And if we can come in early, spend the time with our brands because we have a concentrated portfolio, spend the time with them avoiding those mistakes, you save time, you save money, and and obviously you can accelerate the growth faster. So that's one way that that the concentrated portfolio really helps. But of course, the, the founders that we partner with really need to want partners like us. They want people who are actually involved and who they go to for counsel and to seek guidance when making certain decisions. And so that's where spending a lot of time with founders, even before we make an investment comes into play because we have to make sure that we're aligned on that strategy, that we're on the same page when it comes to what a partnership could look like. And so, you know, it ends up being, you know, six, maybe sometimes 12 months that we spend with a founder before investing to really have both of us feel each other out and to make sure that that makes sense for both parties. You know, on the concentrated portfolio, that's one way that we are, you know, hybrid PEVC. We're also incredibly patient capital. We understand that in the beauty industry, you're not going to see very fast, you know, significant growth um, like you might see in other categories. You know, if you think about traditional VC investing in SaaS as an example, you can have 
incredible growth in beauty, but it may not come in the first or second year. It usually takes some time to get the brand to, you know, expand beyond online into retail and then internationally. I mean, it, there are certain, you know, it could take three up to five years for a brand to really hit their stride and be able to grow and achieve a certain scale where then you could exit an opportunity. And not only does it take sometimes, you know, a little bit of patience for the company to scale thoughtfully, but also it takes a lot of capital to do that. Mm-hmm. The consumer industry, and in particular beauty, is very working capital intensive. You are investing significantly in inventory. And if your brand is growing, if the demand is there, you're buying even more inventory to be able to support that. Um, You're obviously investing in people. And so it's incredibly working capital intensive. And so there's aspects of growing a beauty brand that I think we can appreciate the nuances of more so than other investors that I think makes us really good partners. And that patience is, is one of them. We also spend a lot of time, as I mentioned, on the diligence side in reference to the founder. We also spend a lot of time diligencing opportunities and on the brand and the business side. And Some VCs tend to be very transactional. They go from one deal to another. They may spend a couple weeks in diligence and they check a couple boxes and and move and, and make an investment. For us, we actually apply a lot more rigor to that process. To the best of our abilities, we dig into the data that's available. Not every brand's going to have a ton of data with a lot of history because some of them are one or two years old. So to the best of our ability, we really try to analyze the business and ensure that the information, the data, all of that essentially validates the gut feeling that we may have about a brand. But all that work still has to happen. So we really spend our time on the diligence side, we really spend time monitoring our investments post-transaction. Again, all that we think makes us a, a much stronger investor. And I do think the portfolio company founders and the management teams appreciate that we do spend so much time doing that. Earlier, you mentioned that you guys have had enough industry experience that you can help your portfolio companies avoid costly mistakes. What are some of those common mistakes? Yeah, that's a great question. And there are quite a few that we see, but I will hit two of them that we see the most. And these generally can be a little hard to come back from, which is why avoiding them in the first place is really key. The first one is around distribution. And this, in some respects, can sometimes make a brand dead on arrival for us. When you've seen as many brands as we have, you know, you kind of can recognize a pattern recognition. And one of the things that sometimes is difficult for founders to say when they're trying to grow their business is no. And when it comes to retail distribution in particular, we often sadly come across a situation where a founder has overproliferated their distribution channels because they're very focused on growth, but what they lose sight of is productivity. And we definitely tend to preach that it's better to be in a core anchor retail partner who will support you, who you know, you'll be meaningful to them and they will be meaningful to you, um, where maybe you even have an exclusive relationship with them because that core anchor retail partner will help you not only build your business, but will help build your business in a very productive way versus over proliferating into multiple points of distribution where you may have really low levels of productivity. And so typically when we come across 
a founder who may be making that jump from being online exclusive to expanding into retail, we tend to push them in the direction of finding a core anchor retail partner, if it makes sense for them. And if they have those relationships already, and if they don't, we try to connect them with the right teams at various retailers who, you know, could help them do that. I think the other problem we come across or the other uh, mistake that sometimes founders make is product proliferation. So on the one hand, you have distribution proliferation. On the other, you may have product proliferation, which essentially is, you know, you want to get out there, you want to grow your portfolio as much as possible. You want to launch really great, innovative new products, but you may be launching too much too quickly. And you're not necessarily focusing on a core hero strategy as an example, um, really building up those key hero products and supporting them. And you're just kind of launching just to, you know, hit certain trends or because a retailer is asking you to launch new products. And so that can result sometimes in excess inventory, which is of course, tying up your cash and that's not a good situation. I think the other problem we've seen is when founders, as an example, don't have a good handle on their cost of goods. So they may be launching a lot of products and maybe launching them without an understanding of what their target cost of goods should be so that they can actually be profitable and continue to expand their profit margin. And so when your cost of goods are unchecked and you're launching too many products, you're just not getting the right flow through on your profit margin. And those are mistakes that honestly can take years and years to correct, which is why for us, sometimes they may be a non-starter in our evaluation, given our firsthand experience with dealing with that. And ideally, when we find a brand that we really want to invest in, it has growing momentum, but they haven't made these mistakes yet. And that's where our expertise and the experience can come in to help them avoid those mistakes and of course, you know, get them on the right path faster. Just so we can give people an idea of best practices or benchmarks, what percent of their retail price should the cost of goods be? What kind of margins do you look for in an ideal sort of investment? Sure, sure. And and there's not a one size fits all. And it can also vary by category. As an example, skincare tends to be a higher margin category in general. So if we're looking at a skincare brand, we typically want to see cost of goods no more than I would say around 15% of MSRP. So not when you sell in retail, because when you sell in retail, you obviously give up a margin to the retailer, but as just as a percentage of MSRP. 15% or less is a really good start so that then you can maintain stronger margin as you expand into, you know, other wholesale partnerships. But, you know, we've seen brands that may have 20% cost of goods because they have really a lot of actives in their formulas or they invest a lot in specific packaging, whatnot, but they're, and they're able to still grow successfully. So that's just a benchmark only because, Once you get below product margin, then you have to factor in all of your marketing costs and people and all that stuff. So you want to just go in with the highest possible product margin because there's a lot of other stuff that are variable after that and fixed, of course. So it's just when founders don't factor that in when they're developing, it can be a little tricky because you may land at your absolutely perfect formula that meets all of your criteria. And then based on the MSRP that you want 
to sell at, which is also based on your positioning and your channels of distribution, the math may not work. And those are really difficult then to reverse engineer because you got to go and change the formula. You may have to change your packaging. You may have to change your vendor altogether because they're not able to meet certain cost targets at that point. So let's actually get into more of the criteria that you look for as an investor, roughly in order of what you care about the most. It doesn't have to be perfectly in order, but I'd love to get your sense of what you look for and how you weight these different factors. Yeah, there's there's so much to to think about. As you can imagine, we give a very detailed criteria filter. We've actually tried to have kind of a a system where we have I think up to 13 different categories that we look at and we weight them a little bit differently so that you know one maybe matters a little bit more and we come up with a score for each one of our companies and that's all the scientific part because you need to have that piece. There's also the art and that's, you know, there's a gut around the founder and when you meet them, kind of that really immediate relationship, what the industry is saying and our own ecosystem and you try to marry the art and the science together that hopefully does validate your gut feeling that you get when speaking to a founder. So there's this whole kind of behind the scenes process. Obviously, we don't have time to get into all of that, but I will hit kind of a high level criteria list. And again, with so many brands out there, we have to check a lot of boxes when we're talking to founders and and to brands. And I think over the last two and a half years, we've probably looked at close to 1400 brands, which is crazy. It also shows how many exist in the industry and feels like one is being launched every single day. Um, But for me, just to boil it kind of down, it's really positioning product and people, kind of the three Ps. And I always ask kind of the same questions. Is the brand positioning unique? Is it clear to the consumer? Is it targeted to an attractive category or even a white space if you can find a white space in the industry? So really kind of sitting down and understanding is the positioning right? So that's the first P. And then the second would be product. Is the product excellent? Is it sticky? And is it truly differentiated from everything else that's out there? Does it have high gross margins as we just talked about? Really important to have that in order to have a viable business in this industry. Does it meet certain criteria from a safety perspective? And, you know, is it clinically proven if that's important to the positioning. There's so many kind of questions that we ask around the product piece, because at the end of the day, you can get a consumer to buy your product once, but to get them to come back and to buy again and to buy consistently, you have to deliver unbelievable product and and high quality product. And then the third P is on the people side. And we spent some time talking about the importance of the founder, but, you know, are they believable? Are they backable? And are they surrounded by the right people? Sometimes when we invest very early, a founder hasn't had time to really build out her team yet. And so she may, it may be her and a few consultants as an example. So it's really, you know, does that founder have the ability, does the founder have the right skill sets to be able to grow a team? And if she has a team to then lead a team, can she be a leader? Is she the visionary for the brand? Is she able to create demand for her product? Founders today are the number one brand ambassador and really have power to create content and, you know, excite and and develop communities. So the founder is really, really powerful. And then is the founder also a good partner? Would they be a good partner 
to us, which is where spending many, many months getting to know them in a real way is important because you get a glimpse of what they would be as a partner. And I think kind of those three Ps summarize a lot of what we focus on. I think ultimately too, as investors that see a lot of businesses, is there, you know, from a business viability perspective, is there a clear path to sales growth and to profitability growth? Because at the end of the day, you have to create a strong business that becomes attractive, that scales and that, you know, we can exit. So, you know, making sure that they do have a really strong business, viable business model is really important. And we do that, you know, as a team internally, we have a very small, but mighty team that spends a long time analyzing all of these things. And then we tap into the true beauty ecosystem and, and the beauty network that we have created over many years in this industry to be able to validate that brand and, and validate that founder from our own diligence that we do. And then hopefully all that together lands us at a yes to move on and to invest. How would you say your criteria or the way you conduct diligence or what you look for have shifted in a recessionary environment? Because I know that, you know, there's the lipstick effect, but at the same time, I'm guessing it's just a tough time to be an early stage brand, right? So how has that changed what you look for or some of the things that you advise maybe even your current portfolio companies? Yeah. I mean, listen, beauty is a beautiful industry. It does perform very well in recessionary times. And even if it takes a dip, it bounces back a lot faster than other consumer discretionary categories. This we know, another reason why we love this industry, but it's not recession proof. And, you know, we're seeing a lot of brands being shuttered right now, which is sad or being exited from retailers. So, you know, we in general have never been growth at all cost investors ever. So that philosophy of, you know, just build the top line and not worry about profitability and not worry about scaling in a, in a responsible way, that's never been part of our DNA. So luckily, like some other VC investors that have all of a sudden had to switch mentalities, that hasn't, hasn't been the case for us. But that being said, we do always believe that you should plan for the worst and hope for the best. And in situations like these, where we could be entering uh, more challenging times, making sure that our founders realize that it's more important to look at the bottom line Obviously, we want to see top line growth, but the sources of that revenue are important. So making sure that you're driving revenue from the right places and that that revenue is not coming at too high of a cost where it doesn't make sense to keep that channel open. And so what I mean by that, you know, we've seen a lot of DTC brands pull back. Luckily, with the exception of two of our companies, all of them are fully omni-channel. So it's great. You can pull back from DTC, but you still have retail as another channel of distribution. But in general, our brands, and we've been telling them, it's better to focus on growing, even if it means growing a little bit slower, growing in a more profitable way and pulling back in the areas you need to pull back from if it doesn't make sense to be there. And if you're not a patient investor that may not fly. Um, luckily, we are, and we believe that preserving the brand and you know making sure that you're in a position where you don't have to be forced to raise money in a challenging environment is really important. And so luckily, our brands understand that point of view and have taken that feedback to heart. But hopefully, we don't enter difficult recessionary times. And if at the minimum, they'll just have built better practices for how they run their businesses and kind of have more discipline when it comes to cash. 
cash is always king, right? You know, making sure that you don't have to, that you're not forced into a position where you have to make tough choices because of your capital or lack thereof is something that we keep top of mind for our companies when we're entering times like this. Mm -hmm. I would love to hear your take on what you see taking off more this year, what you are bullish on as far as sort of subcategories within beauty and wellness. Yeah. The beauty industry, as you know, is evolving so quickly and, and trends do come and go. And we watch everything, as you can imagine. We read everything. We keep up on all the trends. Whenever I get asked about the predictions, it's always good to know what's going to rise and what's going to fall, but we're not necessarily driven from an investment perspective by those trends. We ultimately want to invest in incredible brands backed by those unbelievable superhero founders that have a real connection to their consumer and their community. And if you have those things, trends will come and go, but your brand will continue to survive as long as you're delivering what your consumer is looking for. And so for us, we look at what's going on with the rise of you know this kind of new clinical skincare versus we were really focused on clean last year. And now it's all about clinical and the rise of dermatologist back skincare as an example. And we think that's amazing. And we will look at those rising categories, but we'll still go back to those fundamental criteria and they have to check those boxes because otherwise that trend will evolve again. And then your brand may fall behind, or you may not even have a real brand because you kind of were a trend driven company. So you know, I love talking about trends, but I always am hesitant to really have that be a focal point of, of what we're doing. That being said, you know, skincare and the growth towards more clinical backed and efficacious products, you're seeing the impact of biotechnology, whether it comes to skincare, whether it applies to hair care, and again, using science and innovation to deliver what the consumer wants and deliver it better and faster and even more sustainably. I think that's awesome. And I'm a huge proponent of that. And I'm excited to see where biotechnology will continue to evolve those categories. You're seeing obviously the continued rise of wellness. And we talked a lot about beauty, but the impact of wellness and how that is affecting how the consumer is looking at their health and just beauty overall and the convergence of all of those categories. We're spending a lot of time looking at brands that really can straddle beauty and wellness together, which is not easy to do. And those that kind of can bring in that perspective where the consumer is looking for more. It's not about quick fix. What can I put on my face to you know, help me with the brightness of my skin, but it's also what am I consuming? How am I sleeping? The rest of my health overall and how it all ties together. I think that's really exciting. And then I think, you know, one area that hopefully we'll spend more time on this year is just longevity overall. There's the health piece, which is making sure that your cells are, you know, healthy, that it has like the wellness tracking angle and the data angle. And then it's like, how does that actually tie a little bit more? to beauty and what companies are really tapping into science from a longevity perspective to augment the products that they're delivering. And so I'm curious to see how that kind of touches beauty a little bit. Yeah, I think those would be kind of the key ones. 
I want to talk about what it was like to raise a fund, um, especially as a first-time fund manager, because you're part of the 2.4% of U.S.-based VC founding partners who are women. I'm sure those stats are even more abysmal for Latino women and women of color in general. What was that process like, and what advice would you give aspiring fund managers who are women? I love this question. The 2.4%, man, that stat gets me every single time. And it's unbelievable when you think about the amount of VC investing that is done every year. It's crazy sad. And it's something I actually didn't realize until I got into the VC world. It is one of the best experiences I've ever had building this fund with my co-founder, Rich. It's also probably the hardest thing that I've ever done. And I thought I used to work a lot when I was in investment banking at UBS or when I was at Catterton in private equity or my other firm, Tangram Capital in private equity, or when I was in the beauty industry at Laura Geller and Clark's Botanicals. But I mean, this is a 24-7 job and you are building a brand, you're building a business, and you're also fundraising and I have such an appreciation actually for founders that I meet that are in the fundraising process because it is so darn hard to raise money while you're also trying to run a company and build a business. And oh, by the way, you have a personal life and you may be a parent and you know uh, have a partner and need to have somewhat of a life. So it, it's really difficult. I would say my experience, I feel very fortunate that we were able to raise our first-time fund as, as an emerging manager, first-time manager and emerging manager. Those are really difficult hurdles because oftentimes people don't want to invest in managers that they don't know or they don't want to invest in smaller sub $50 million funds. And you know, raising during a global pandemic was difficult in and of itself. So I feel very grateful for what we were able to do, but it is a huge commitment and it is one where you have to be relentless and you're going to get a lot of no's. You're going to pitch your heart out and you're going to get a lot of no's. But what you hope for are very quick no's because then you can say, thank you very much. Doesn't work. Move on. It's the slow no's or the no's that go ignored and unanswered for a long period of time, which sting the most. But you know, you have to be able to go outside of your comfort zone and try to find people who want to support your cause. And I have to say, as a female GP selling beauty as my product, it wasn't easy. It wasn't easy. And when when Rich and I would sit and pitch potential LPs, oftentimes they were male, most of them usually white, and there was very little connection. I couldn't connect with the beauty industry necessarily because they didn't understand it. They weren't consumers of it, or they just didn't really understand why the niche to focus on lipstick as an example. Why couldn't we go broader into consumer? And it was really difficult to connect with them and and have them understand the value of what we were bringing. And when you can't connect with your prospective investor and you have very little in common, it's really hard. So again, I understand why in particular female founders found it so difficult to raise VC money. And in particular, female of co- females of color, because the other side of the table looks so different from them. 
And so, and that's something that, you know, we still encounter today, raising our second fund. It's not for everybody. We have to find the right people. We have to find people who believe in the fact that we're investing predominantly in women and have a significant portion of them women of color in our portfolio and that we want to be one of those VCs that is breaking down those barriers and, and improving those terrible stats. So you, you know, hopefully we can connect with prospective LPs who see the value in that and also trying to find more women LPs that want to back majority female led and run companies. I mean, that's what I'm hoping to find as well. And I think that'll make the conversations so much easier, but yeah, it wasn't easy. And there were times that that it was discouraging when um, when we reach out to people, even over email, and they would see my partner's name, Rich, and mine on an email, and they would ask me, what is Rich's availability for a call? Because they would assume that I was his assistant. And it still happens to this day. I mean, Rich and I kind of just laugh at it, but people just assume that I'm, I'm his assistant. And, you know, it is what it is. I think the importance is you don't let that get you down. Don't let it stop you. Like I said, be relentless in your passion and what you're pursuing. And also network with other women who are doing what you're doing or who understand. The power of numbers is important here. And the connections that you can get from other women who've done what you're trying to do and who could open doors for you or could at least, again, help you avoid certain pitfalls that they may have encountered. I can only imagine how hard that is because when you're in the midst of fundraising, you're thinking about building your own business because you are an entrepreneur in your own right because you have True Beauty Ventures. You're also fundraising. You also have to worry about all the portfolio companies because your success depends on their success. And so you're thinking about all these different things. I can only imagine how stressful that must be. It's it's stressful. And, you know, when your friends say, well, why are you working on weekends and why are you working on holidays? Well, it's because, you know, we are building something really special. And, and to, you just said it perfectly. You're fundraising, you're managing a team, you're building a company, and you have 12 other companies that are depending on you. So you can never not be working. But I think the important thing is if we didn't love what we were doing, if you don't have passion in your work, then why are you even doing it? Obviously, you need to be making a living. And it, it is a blessing to have your work also be what you love. But if you could really try to bring those together, then you know it doesn't really feel like as much work because you do you are having fun and it kind of keeps you motivated on the days where you know it's one back-to-back -back Zoom day that's I know everybody can relate, can be incredibly exhausting and draining, but it kind of keeps you going. And then when you can impact and change people's lives, and we see it with the founders that we back, and then those founders and, and their brands impacting their consumers and changing their lives for the better. It is really, really reaffirming of why we started this to begin with and why we exist and that all that hard work, you know, pays off in major spades. I also imagine that when things happen that are deeply offensive and should not still be <laughs> happening in 2023, like somebody asking you if you're the assistant, basically, when that happens, I imagine there's there might be some part of you that uses that as fuel because in a way, in the best case scenario, what you're doing can help create these incredibly successful, often female founders who then can become LPs, right? They can they can start to make a dent in yeah. the ecosystem. We talk about the sort of stats around how many female founders raise capital or are able to exit, but it starts with the 
investors. And then that also flows up to the LPs. It all goes upstream. And so you're embedded in this ecosystem. And it's amazing that you get to now make some sort of a dent in that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's so many ways to create change and a lot of progress has been made. But, you know, wealth creation is an amazing way to do that. Because if you're able, in the case of the founders that I'm investing in, if I'm able to, you know, help them create wealth where then they can become an LP for another female GP, or they can fund another small indie brand that's founded by a woman of color. I mean, that's where it does actually start to meaningfully change what, you know, kind of society starts to look like. And I couldn't agree with you more. It's not about just the female founders getting the investment, getting the support. It's the female funders on the other side too. And they both really reinforce each other. That's when you're going to really start to see progress. More women are launching funds than ever before. There are more programs being launched that are dedicated to supporting not only emerging managers, but emerging managers that are diverse or that have mandates to invest behind diverse people or impact mandates and whatnot. There is more visibility and discussion. That's for sure. Now, are people putting their money where their mouths are and actually not only funding these funds and businesses, but then giving them the tools to succeed and coming back and being supportive as a long-term partner is still to be seen. I think you're seeing, I can compare this in particular to the beauty industry as it relates to visibility and launching of Black-owned brands, Latinx-owned brands. The shelf space is being opened up and the support is being given to launch. But I always push the retailers, how are we coming together? And it's, gosh, it's not just about launching. Anybody can launch. It's then growing and scaling and having the playbooks, the resources, the network, and just the overall toolkit to be able to succeed. That's the harder part than just the launch. So I want to see now over time how those brands actually get that support, which is one of the reasons why we launched a mentorship program that's dedicated primarily to females and BIPOC founders. And it's why Ulta launched a music accelerator and you have Sephora accelerator. You have all these great programs, but let's not only give them one-time support, but continued support along their journey because their journeys are going to take so many twists and turns. And, you know, having that support system is so, so crucial. So it's the long-term game and the visibility is great. So that's progress being made, but now what, what else are we going to do? And then on the investing side, same thing, these programs are being created and more funds are being launched, but what happens with the second fund, right? You got to make sure that those investors that came in in your first fund also support you in the second one and so on in order for you to continue to grow and to be successful. So we'll see what happens, but I do feel optimistic that there is an opportunity. It's just a matter of how far will this go? And, you know, when we take a step back and we do look at the terrible statistics, how long will it take? Well, I guess only time will tell. What advice would you give after having closed your first fund to anybody who's looking to raise a fund? Well, one is, do they have 
the appetite for it because as we said, it's all encompassing and you know, you really need to have your own support system to be able to do it. So I'm very grateful for the support system around me. Otherwise, there's no way I could have done it. But, um, you know, if you're looking to raise a fund, you have to think about a few things. One, how big of a fund are you looking to raise? Because that also will kind of tell you maybe who the folks that you should be talking to from a potential LP perspective, who they should be. Um, if you're looking to raise over 100 million, you have one pond to fish in of institutional LPs. If you're raising less and you're considered more, you know, an emerging manager, that may be a different pool. For example, for our first fund, it was a $42 million fund. So predominantly we had a lot of individuals who came in to support us. We had some great family offices and a couple institutions, but because of the size of our fund, we couldn't talk to the big endowments and pension funds as an example to be able to support us because we were too small for them and they had minimum investment requirements. So knowing kind of what size fund you want to raise, your background, do you have a track record already of investing that can be attributable to you? A lot of LPs want to see that. So I've seen a lot of folks start their investing career creating SPVs versus going and, and trying to start a fund from scratch without having that track record in place. You know, really kind of tapping into your your networks, and if you can find an amazing mentor or people in your you know very close sphere of trusted advisors that could guide you along the way, because you don't know what you don't know. So we rely heavily on a lot of our partners who helped us get to where we are, from our law firm to our fund administrator to our tax people. I mean, they were really instrumental in helping us learn what we don't know about creating a fund. And obviously, is this your passion? Whether it's the investing side or, you know, you love a specific industry, maybe you have great operating experience, kind of figure out what your superpower is as an investor and magnify that as much as possible. And, you know, if you need to find an amazing partner to do it with, find a partner who will augment what you currently have. You know, my co-founder and I are, we've known each other for a really long time. So there's a lot of trust there, but also we're, we're similar in some ways, but we're also really, really different. And that's great because we complement each other very, very well. I'm a woman, he's a man. He's been doing this for, you know, a lot longer than I have. So he brings a lot of wisdom and experience and I'm really close to you know, I, the operating side is as, as an operator. So I'm like hands in in my companies and I provide a different perspective sometimes than what he sees. And it's great to have that. So I would encourage you to maybe find a partner that can do that for you. And then, you know, if you have the luxury of raising a fund, invest in the right people. And that takes a really, really long time to figure out what your culture is and the right person or people that you can bring onto your team. Because when you're not around, they are a reflection of you and they represent the firm to your portfolio companies They represent the firm to the outside world. So just make sure you have the right people. And we're so really so thankful for the team that we have here at True Beauty. Having met Kendall and Caroline, I can attest to how wonderful they are. So you guys They're have done wonderful. a great job. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. So I know you have a flight to catch and packing to do. So the question I'll close off with is the same one I recently asked Katie Welch at the end of our interview. What advice would you give your 22-year-old self? Oh my gosh. Um, I have probably two pieces of advice. One is don't spend so much money. <laughs> you don't need that pair of Louboutin shoes, put it in the market, <laughs> invest it. Gosh, just even put it under the mattress. Um, no, I, I'm, I'm kidding. 
slash I'm not kidding. Yeah, I would have invested more when I was that young. Not that I would have had a lot to invest, but you know, when you first start making money, you get excited and you spend it. I would have probably been a little bit more frugal. No, but I think the real piece of advice would be, I wish I would have been in an industry where I was surrounded by more female mentors, having been in investment banking and private equity for the first half of my career when I was young, it was a male dominated industry. And I just, I didn't have a lot of female senior people to look up to at that point in time that I could consider a mentor. And I found it later in my career, but I wish I would have had it earlier on. And I hope times have changed now if you're entering investment banking and, you know, I hope you're surrounded more by female leaders, but I would say, you know, seek one out earlier so that you could just see, you know, what it's like 20, 30 years down the road. And if you want to be like that person and you want to kind of see what your life would be in that period of time, and you could learn from them, not only professionally, how they got to where they are, but personally, both how they built both their personal and professional lives together. Because I think as women, the pressure is on to do both. And that's the expectation. And it's really, it it is a lot of pressure. So to figure out, kind of have someone guide you on how they were able to do it. And actually, more importantly, just show you that it's possible. It is possible to have it all if you want it all. So yeah, I I wish I could have sought that out earlier, but um, luckily I was able to find that when I entered the beauty industry and I was surrounded by all of these incredible executives at amazing companies just running things. And it really inspired me to, to reach for that myself. It's a beautiful note to end on. Christina, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you so much. I had a great time.